0: Welcome to another week of Surviving Creativity with your hosts, Brad Geiger, Scott Kurtz, and I'm Corey Cassoni. It's the show all about following your dreams, becoming your own boss, and hopefully surviving the process. Surviving Creativity is made possible by patrons like you. If you like what you hear, head on over to patreon.com forward slash survivingcreativity, and please consider becoming a patron. You can also now find Surviving Creativity on iTunes. Download it to your favorite listening device. Just head on over to iTunes and search Surviving Creativity. This week on Surviving Creativity, we're fortunate to have animator and cartoonist Tom Bancroft. He's probably best known for his work during the second golden age at Disney as an animator on such features as Lion King, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Atlantis, and a host of other titles. But more recently, you know Tom from his best-selling book, Creating Characters with Personality, as well as his webcomic, Outnumbered brad scott and i sat down with tom to talk about the history of animation in the hollywood system as well as the future of animation with new media and the current pickle that the studios are in with the doj over wage fixing so grab a sheet of celluloid and get ready to go it's another episode of surviving creativity
1: how the sausage is made <laughs> yeah. yeah it's sexy speaking
0: of how sausages are made like Uh-oh. that transition that was nice good. i like that the worst <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh
0: we have with us the this week we're very fortunate to have with us tom bancroft uh who if you're unfamiliar is uh, an animator and a cartoonist and um I mean, would you say, Tom, best known for, for kind of being at Disney in the animation department during what some describe as like the golden years? I would say second golden age. <laughs> but uh, yeah,
3: I mean, I think that's, I, I kind of split my career in half. And my first half was the Disney days, about 11 years. And for sure, that's the one that probably people want to hear about the most. You know, the second half was about uh, writing a couple of uh, best-selling character design books and um lots of freelance and lots of character design and things like that which has been you know it's just not as as big as the disney days you know well
0: I, I think you were at disney longer than i mean it, it's probably uh it's hard not to talk about it you were there for what 11 years from like the early 90s to the to the early 2000s and mm-hmm. you were you were animating through uh, just everything, like Beauty of the Beast, Lion King, Beauty and the Beast, Lion King, Aladdin, uh, Mulan. Uh, you were you were on all of the big ones, yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. Of the second generation, I didn't do Pinocchio or Lady and the Tramp. Just so everybody knows,
0: <laughs> <laughs> not that old.
3: Make that clear. Yeah, I worked a little bit on Tarzan and uh, Mulan, uh, Mulan. My brother always corrects me, and um, a few others. Uh, Atlantis. I did like four scenes on Atlantis. It's embarrassing they gave me a credit. Mm. But
1: I it's really interesting cuz I recently rewatched Tarzan uh mm-hmm. because my niece is super into Frozen and I was trying to introduce my brother and his wife into other Disney movies they could show their kids that wasn't Frozen. <laughs> and uh you know, I watched Frozen more in one week than I ever thought I would watch in my lifetime. And it, <laughs> I always find it enjoyable. I like the story. And, yeah. Uh, but I thought, you know, there are other movies. They're just as good. And um, story-wise, I felt like Tarzan was really not great. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, like, I don't remember it being as, as uh, kind of choppy as that. And then I remembered thinking about, uh, the the story behind the scenes of Emperor's New Groove and how that st- started and how it ended up. Yeah. And how, like, what's that like on the inside? Did you go through any of that where, you know, you're starting on something thinking it's one thing and then years later you're still working on it and now there's a llama? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: Well, actually, the llama did transition from both films. but um, But I get your example. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, they... Every single film at Disney went through that, and uh, I mean, I was just, I did a museum uh, demo last night at the local museum, and I was telling this story about Beauty and the Beast. When we first saw Beauty and the Beast as a rough cut, um, nowadays they call it an animatic. We, back in the day, we called it a story reel, but it's basically when all the storyboards are done, they shoot those, they add the rough vocal tracks and dialogue and the you know scratch music, and you know, you have a film, and even before it's animated, so you can watch it. And um, if you're used to seeing those, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> then um, then you you know you can get the uh, gist of how the movie's looking. Beauty and the Beast, and and then as we as we went into production, we start adding animation to it. Pencil test animation gets added and replacing out the storyboards as it gets done. And um, Beauty and the Beast, we saw probably three screenings over months, right? Over the first six months of Beauty and the Beast, and it was crap. I mean, everybody hated it. And we were watching it and going, this is not working. you know. And, and people would give notes, and all the animators would give notes to directors, and this is what should change. And, and literally, Beauty and the Beast came together at the last minute. I mean, really, a lot of the changes that we made, and it made for a lot of overtime. Stuff got mm-hmm. scrapped and thrown out and redone. Animation was thrown out. And really, it was like, you know into the line, and we were just ch- changing the ending, adding a whole new ending at the very end. And um, and it just came together. And everybody was like, all of a sudden, probably by the fourth or fifth screening, we're like, oh my gosh, this is really good. <laughs> this is going to be a hit. And then, likewise, Pocahontas did the opposite. I mean, it was great at the beginning and all that. And then as we went on, it just kind of, it didn't evolve as much. And it kind of stayed at that, that level it was at the beginning. And it just, you know what I mean? It didn't really yeah. improve yeah. a ton. And um, in the end, it's a beautiful looking film. Um, but I don't know, Pocahontas doesn't have as much heart as Beauty and the Beast to me.
0: You hear stories like this from traditional animation all the time. And mm-hmm. I i wonder, having you been there for so long, you might be able to give us some insight. Is that just sort of the nature of the animation business when it comes to that that kind of traditional studio structure corporate animation that it's just going to be a really long time. There's going to be a lot of fingers in the pie and changes are going to get made that, that maybe are far, far off the initial course.
3: Well, we certainly, and I'm, and I'm talking, the we that I'm talking about is there's the second generation of, um, during that second golden age at Disney from about Roger Rabbit or a little mermaid on, um, before it all became CG, uh, right before *Sweating Bullets*, somewhere in there, is like sort of the second golden age. Um, uh, oh, *Home on the Range*. Sorry, uh, *Sweating Bullets* was the original title. Um, anyway, the um, during that <clears throat> during that time, we all got pretty used to okay, this is how it's going to work. You know, we, we just disregard the first time you even see the movie. You know, uh, on the story reel because it's probably not going to be working great. And the directors always come up there and they kind of give you the, you know, disclaimer, okay, just remember, this is our first pass and, you know, <laughs> not everything's going to be great. And we just got used to it, you know? Yeah. And they kind of trained us almost to, to think, okay, well, first pass is really just a note session time. You know, we're going to watch it and there might be some fun stuff going on, but really we're just going to write a lot of notes and and just pray that it improves a ton second pass. And and really it was the higher-ups, the, higher ups, the uh, Peter Schneider's and the Tom Schumacher's, and we had some president changes, but those were the two guys. And before that, Jeffrey Katzenberg. Uh, but those three were kind of the guiding, you know, visions through that time, the presidents of animation. And um, they they just got us used to that. And they, they wanted these things to have a little bit of flux all through the story process. But even in production, I mean like that's what really set Disney apart from, you know, the the smaller independent animated companies because I always said that the difference between Disney and those guys were Disney would throw stuff away. They didn't fall in love with anything until it was perfect, you know? And at an independent studio you can't afford to do that. You have to go, right. okay, well, no, no, we hit that deadline, we gotta go on now, start making this and boom boom. And you get what you get. Um, but at Disney, they were like, "Well, no, nothing's too sacred. They'll throw it out."
4: And does the collaboration aspect of that play into it as well? In other words, at a at an independent studio, I could I could imagine there's a lot fewer people, so there's a lot more ownership taken in individual scenes and so forth whereas in disney i guess my assumption is that you've got so many people working that no one person takes a look at a scene and and feels as if that's his territory that he needs to protect
3: yeah yes and no i mean in general that's true i mean i would Mm -hmm. say animation is a super collaborative thing because it's just so big it's such a mammoth everybody has to you're always going to have even on a smaller independent studio you're going to have quite a few hands, you're just going to have maybe another hundred more hands at Disney but uh, on every shot, but yeah, you're right, I mean, there is that feeling that, we had this thing, and I guess this sums it up in a creative way anyway, we had a thing at Disney that we called plussing, the idea was, was that, and this wasn't official, it wasn't in a manual, it was just something you kind of learned sort of via the nine old men, you know, the ghosts of the nine old men, uh, is that if a scene came onto your desk, you were supposed to plus it, you know you don't just give what was there at, back you you add a little something and that was the idea is that yeah. a, if every hand if every hand does that as it goes through the process ink and paint you know background painter all the the people that touch that scene in different areas then you're gonna it's gonna come out the other end and be this really incredible scene that all of us are gonna be shocked by
4: and I, uh, that was that worked How important was that to make that plussing an institutional expectation? In other words, uh, I've talked to I've talked to people about collaborations and different uh, circumstances, and and there's always one of two mindsets. There's one mindset where you hand something to someone, and then they take such an ownership over it that they feel as if that is now their ball to carry, and it's it's a def- definition of who they are in terms mm-hmm. of what they hand back. And then, which which sounds great, but has its pitfalls. And then on the other hand, you've got someone who will refuse to do anything but what you absolutely tell that person to do. And what I found out through through my discussions is that that's a result of them having tried the plussing method and have that client or that collaborator say, that's not what I wanted. That's not what I expected. And mm-hmm. then if that happens to you enough, you start to draw back and say, okay, I'm getting run around in circles. I'm only going to do exactly what I'm told. So I guess the question is, how important do you think it was that that plussing was an institutional expectation, that they put it right out there on the on the table? We expect you to embellish and, and to improve. Yeah, that's a super smart question, Brad, uh, because, yeah, I mean... Well, that, listen. I'm a super smart guy. Well, yeah. No, I mean, I'm,
3: <laughs> no, I'm listening to that and going, "This is a guy that's obviously worked with a lot of clients." Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, I mean, and you're right because part—it's it, sort of a gray, a gray line with any artist, I guess you could say, in any project. But at Disney, it was especially there was that part of the plussing process was this ownership thing where. There wasn't one animator or even cleanup artists that would then clean up that animation that didn't look at that scene coming on their desk as, all right, it is my responsibility to make this incredible and, and, and the best I can. And and I'm not saying we wouldn't come in tired one day and not always, you know what I mean, have that yeah, yeah. Of, uh, passion. But um, in general, yeah, there was like this huge ownership that my name's going to go on this. And, and I remember feeling that. When I, My very first film that I animated on, I'd, I'd worked on Rescuers Down Under in cleanup, but the first film I actually animated on was Beauty and the Beast. I was an animating assistant, and that means you're basically a junior animator. And mm-hmm. what it also means is you get the crap right? that all the other animators don't want to do. Um, so I'm doing a lot of these guys with pitchforks and, and torches singing, you know, let's go kill the beast, right? <laughs> That's all me. And, uh, and uh, they've got their logs and stuff. And so I'm seeing, at first I thought, okay, well, this scene doesn't really matter and all that. And, you know, I'm, I'm just going to get it done so I can get to the better stuff, you know. But I'll do a good enough job that hopefully they'll, you know, give me better stuff. But then I see my scene up in dailies like that next week. Mm-hmm. And it's my pencil test of my little guys with their torches and stuff, and the very next shot right after mine, because it's just we're all working on different parts of the the film in California and in Florida during those days. I was at the Florida studio, and but the very next scene right after mine in Daly's was a, a B scene by Glenn Keene. <laughs> and I was just like, it hit me like a ton of bricks that wait a second. I'm working on the same film Glenn Keane is working on. And my little piddly thing is going to, at least in dailies, not cut together later on, but in dailies, it could be right next to his. And I'm like, that kind of matters. And you know what? He's at dailies in California watching my little piddly scene. Because he can't wait to see his scene next. And so, you know, it hit me that, wait a second, my little scene does matter, and my name being on it, especially because there'd be a little title card that would flash up and would say the animator's name, and I'd be like, uh-oh, people are watching, you know? Yeah. And even this scene does matter. And it, does, it did in the story context, too, of course, you know, not just the ego context. But, um, you know, yeah, you do take, uh, you know... That was the gray line. Was that you know there were the gray area. Was that you could you could obsess and make it all about you, and then barely give it to your cleanup guys and say, okay, look, look, you gotta really make this good because you know I put a ton of work into it. And pretty much every animator was like that. But then what was nice was that usually the positive side of that was that then that assistant hopefully liked you and respected you enough that they would go, okay, yeah, yeah, no, I will. Oh, I'm I'm gonna and they meant it. You know they were gonna yeah. put their all into it now too. And that was the positive spin of it. The guys that were like you were saying that are kind of came in and didn't care a whole lot, or you know, thought that they were only going to be at Disney for a couple years, or that they were hot shots right out of art school, and and uh, oh wow, they, they, we had those we, that came out of art school and thought that they were going to be an animator in two weeks, you know, and why am I even doing cleanup to start with, and. Uh, those guys didn't last long. They would end yeah. up getting thrown into the the crowd scene cleanup, uh, you know, uh, kind of area, and and then they would get bored and they would leave on their own, you know. So
4: yeah. So how did Disney? Now you're I'm talking specifically at that very beginning of your stint in Disney, where you're you're, you're coming in Disney's, you know, hasn't had its Little Mermaid moment yet, and. You're coming in and, and, and that's where you told us that you came in to Disney. How does Disney instill this, this, this drive in, in their in their creative team that, that brings somebody like you in that really wants to do you know 110 uh, percent? Was it a great paying job? Did they find other ways of uh, encouraging and and enthusing you? What what way, or, or was that something you brought in that was that that you would have been doing that kind of work, whether it was Disney or you know Warner Brothers or or wherever? I, how how do you think they instilled that?
3: Well, they didn't have to. I mean, yeah. seriously, Brad. They the you know as you know all we're all artists and we all want the very best work to be out there in the world and animators uh, we had this lineage of the nine old men and we were all animation geeks you got to remember that we before we got into and just like the kids that are in school now they grew up on Little Mermaid and films like that and they that's all that's their dream well mine was 101 Dalmatians and things like that that I remember (sighs) seeing when I was a kid and and believe it or not Black Cauldron (laughs) uh, great movie nice uh well great movie I don't know but (laughs) <laughs> I'm glad you like it.
2: <laughs> so, but I, but I saw it.
3: I, I saw it. I mean, Scott, I'll, I'll give you this. I saw it when I was, you know, just around high school or just out of high school, and it was right when I was discovering animation as a career, you know. And so, I saw that movie in the theaters when it came out, and and it was the perfect timing. So I can actually point to that film and go. That was one of the reasons I went to Disney. Was I saw that movie right when I was trying to decide what I wanted to do, and and I was like, oh, th- wait, there's a whole line of credits here. These guys get paid to do this, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it, it did point me. Uh, it, it was at least a part of it. So um, it definitely. It was, a, it was a good film. Um, anyway, I got to check. I, I was.
1: I was super. I. <laughs> It was one of the first, like, novels I read.
3: Oh, okay. Because mm-hmm.
1: it was a book, right? The Black Cauldron?
3: Yeah. I don't think it was called The Black Cauldron. It was called, like, something about the pig. Um, but, and I and I heard that they, it was two books, two or three books put together to make that movie. And uh, Probably. Yeah. Sort of Lord of the Rings kind of a thing. Um But to answer your original question is that they discovered real quick. I mean, back when Jeffrey Katzenberg was still there, he was quoted just as saying something like in in, in like a secret, you know, a meeting that the other animators weren't in that basically, you know, he discovered early on, I can can basically tell these guys to do anything and work long hours and they will do it. He Mm -hmm. said this is, he loved animation, and that's why he kind of started putting his time in animation when he when he first got to Disney was that um, he discovered really quickly that they they were a bunch of people that would do whatever he said because they cared more they were more passionate about the film than he was yeah and he wanted it to be good because of the money side mostly but we were all like oh, it, it, you know if you just said one little word to us about oh that scene's not that great you know what Aladdin he's not that great right now. Let's make him look more like Tom Cruise. We'd, we'd go back to our desk and just start drawing feverishly to, to please him and to make it better, <laughs> you know, because seriously.
1: Even <laughs> at, at and then the, he's like, you know what? These guys will do anything. I, get, I bet I can fix their wages and no one will do anything.
4: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a great point. What do you think about that? Oh, the fixing
3: wages thing? I mean, yeah. I'm not shocked. By it, by by any means, you know, I I felt that back when, um, when it didn't exist was and and you felt it was, um, when Jeffrey left Disney to go start uh, DreamWorks with Spielberg and Geffen, um, they raided Disney like crazy, and this is what led to, uh, you know, the the price fixing that we have now, um, because when they raided Disney. It became um, animators were in control. We all got lawyers. Uh, our contracts Whoa. wouldn't even be up. I can tell you stories, guys. So, that, that would. It, I mean, we were in control. It was wonderful. It was a great time. Now, unfortunately, <laughs> we also. So, like, the now, wait a minute.
4: You, you didn't, you didn't come in and sign what? a Disney contract and sit down and start working. You had a lawyer and you went through negotiations. Then uh, got a contract. On, on, How did on, that work?
0: let's let's catch up our our listening audience real quick so they know what's going on because to my shock actually this has not received a lot of publicity yeah yeah uh, especially recently a lot of people have spent a lot of time on this whole Amazon hashé thing which is that's fine but this the the uh, wage fixing thing that's happening right now in the animation industry, which I think some people are calling Tectopus, which is a little weird to me. But whatever. What? <laughs> yeah, that's the name that they've applied to it. It's so stupid. Uh, the, basically, what's happened is um, several of the animation studios have... Uh, they've, the, the head the headmen the bosses at these studios, have all contacted one another and, and decided not to try to poach animators from each other's studios. And the way that they're doing this is by wage-fixing. They're basically saying, uh, you know, Katzenberg is going to uh, who's who's in charge over at Disney right now, Catmull or whoever, and saying, all right, man, don't whatever you do, don't don't raise your wages above this much money and don't come for my guys. And I won't raise my wages above this much money. I won't come for your guys. So the idea is being that they're leveling the playing field by fixing the wages so that the animators, it doesn't really matter where you animate at. It's it's, it's kind of irrelevant. Right. Mm-hmm. But wait, what um,
1: Tom is saying? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, is there, and he he's talking about what led, what he thinks led to this, which was when Katzenberg left uh, Disney to form DreamWorks. He's, right, right he's around, basically saying
3: right around Pocahontas time,
0: right? So kind of near the end of that second golden age of Disney, he basically uh, poached. All of Disney's animators, and and that's what Tom means by he raided them. He just went, he just took every all the best animators and said, "Hey, come with me. I'm going to give you more money. Let's go." And all the animators left. Yeah, not all of them, but yeah. I mean, he he got. I, the, let, uh, let's be honest, they all left.
3: Well, no, Glen <laughs> Keane was still there, and and uh, Andreas stayed. Some of the old guys, and, yeah. And Eric Goldberg. I mean, he didn't get some of the very top guys, but right, right. Um, I didn't go.
2: Hello. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, uh, yeah. I just wanted to have my name in that list. Sorry. Uh, but, uh, well, oh, OK, so that's the backstory, story. And, and I don't I haven't read a lot of these articles about, you know, Catmull. And I mean, on. that's
0: just it. There aren't a lot of articles. I have mm-hmm. this information because I'm a nerd and I read a lot of court documents yeah. um, because I'm again, I'm a nerd. <laughs> I, I find okay. that stuff intriguing as hell. Yeah. Um, you know there's it's i and people should care this is like a 300 million dollar uh class action lawsuit against a huge section of of the tech and animation industries like for all for every 23 year old kid who loves tumblr and loves animation and loves this and loves that this should be the thing that you're mad about this should be the thing that you're upset about and that you're making noise about in in the social sphere because this is the thing that is going to directly affect you in about five years.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and well, you know, you're
0: you these people aren't looking down the road, and 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 they're not worried about it. It's it's not. Uh, I don't, and I don't know why. I don't know why this one thing just hasn't made the news, and everybody's involved. I, Pixar, I, Disney, DreamWorks, Apple. I mean, everybody's involved. It's creepy.
3: Well, I think it's ironic that that uh, Katzenberg himself is even involved in this at all because he's really the one that started it, and uh, he was on the other side of that and started the whole thing. and That's the whole reason they need it now is because of him. I would mm-hmm. l- literally lay it at his feet.
0: Sure. Well, um, and, and to, so pick up where you left off. He Katzenberg went to form DreamWorks and he basically poached Disney. Yes. And and, and tried to clean him out.
3: Yeah, and by the way, Jeffrey Katzenberg, I love you and all that, so we're still friends. But well, he, you know, listens, he listens to, our to
0: the show, you know that. Yeah, no, I'm sure he does.
3: <laughs> so, not bad mouthing him. This is fact. Okay, so what happened was is that uh, right when he, he left just before Pocahontas came out, because I remember saying goodbye to him. He literally did like uh, a tour of Disney Animation. I think he even went to Paris because we still had the Paris studio at the time. But he went to every studio and had sort of a goodbye tour. And we I remember being in the Florida studio and we were all in line and he just stood there and we all walked through the line and shook his hand and said goodbye to him and and it happened within like a week. I mean it was a pretty fast uh, we just heard that he was he uh, had quit and then he was doing this goodbye tour and that was it and uh, but at that little goodbye tour he, he would he was like kind of whispering and everybody he like i remember shaking his hand he kind of leaned in he's like hey we're gonna talk in a little bit okay you know it was that kind of thing <sighs> oh my gosh it literally was happening on disney's dime already you know what i mean like he well, was let's, still let's, let's be
0: clear that there's nothing illegal about that yeah and, it, and in fact at that time now what 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 uh, Jeffrey has been doing now is the, the DOJ is involved and is technically now illegal. But back then, this is the way the business is supposed to work. Someone is supposed to come to you and say, hey, I'm going to make you a better offer.
4: Right, yeah. right, right. I yeah. want
0: you to come work for my company. So that now, right now we're in totally legal territory. <laughs>
3: yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know how cool it is that he starts that process while he's
4: still at Disney. All right, all right now morale. is what we're going yeah, to talk yeah. about. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's yeah. a difference between being cool and being legal. Yeah, right. But you know what? We were excited. You know, we of were like, Of course, okay, especially wait if, if you were one of the guys that got that lean-in whisper. Did, did you guys all gather at the end of that and, and, then and one guy's like, who got the whisper and who didn't? Jeff- well, insane, sort of. thing to me.
3: I mean, here's the yeah. thing. Jeffrey, Jeffrey was well-respected in the fact that one, he was—I mean, he—he he was a hard worker. He'd get up at dawn and like be on his treadmill and just start making phone calls. And he was known as the phone call guy. He would rather than email people and all that. And this was slightly as email was just starting to be big anyway. But I mean, you know, this was. But he was—he wouldn't have an assistant do it. He would literally call almost everybody from Tom Cruise down to an in-betweener at Disney. He would call mm-hmm. them, and so. At the end of every film, he would have his assistant contact almost every animator, in-betweener, um, background artist, Florida and California, and he would make sure he said thank you to them for for hey for your great work on on uh, Aladdin or Beauty and the Beast or and wow. and he even did it on Pocahontas. He was already left and had gone to DreamWorks, and he still was making. And I don't know if it was to everybody, but I got a call where he was like, hey, man, you know, I know, you know, I wasn't there when it came out, but I really feel like he was there during the development of it, and he had a lot to do with it, um, so he said, hey, uh, Pogonis was, you know, important to me, and, and you know, just thank you for your work, I was like, oh, thanks, Jeffrey, <laughs> how, are, how are things going over there, <laughs> yeah, um, but it was, he was that kind of guy, where that stuff was important to him, and, and that earned him some respect amongst the animators, and stuff like that, that, we never had the suits really kind of talk to us. You know, Michael Eisner wouldn't come around and, and talk to people. But Jeffrey was always very hands-on um, when it came to that kind of stuff. And
0: mm-hmm. let's be clear, too, that the the formation and development of DreamWorks was, was and is really important to the animation
4: industry and the entertainment industry.
0: It, you know, it well, changed ex- yeah, it.
4: Well, explain what you mean by that.
0: It Well, just what Tom was going to say. It It changed animation and entertainment dramatically and almost overnight.
3: Right. Because D- Disney was just, the, he was, they were the, the big thing in town and they had been for like, they were, whatever, they were the, 60s, let's face it. They were, the,
0: they were the only thing in town.
3: Yeah. I mean, there, was, there was, was nothing just, else. Uh, yeah. Pixar was just starting to, uh, I can't remember when Toy Story came out uh, and when DreamWorks actually formed. I think D- DreamWorks started just after uh, Pixar had their first feature i can't Toy remember. Toy story
0: was 95 and dreamworks i'm going to look up dreamworks right now to see when they formed dreamworks uh 94 so oh, it was same time. right yeah. yeah it was right around the same time
3: yeah because that's the way i remember it is that there was just a lot going on so pixar is just starting to come out with their first feature film and, uh, or I hadn't come out yet, but somewhere around there. And then DreamWorks is forming at the same time. And what happened was, here's a little bit more of the backstory that you guys probably already know, is that um, Michael Eisner uh, was supposed to make Jeffrey the president of animation. Yep. Um, I think that was the title he was going for. Um, and... Uh, oh no! President of the company, I think is what it was, of of Disney, um, and he gave it to um, somebody else. He gave it to, um, gosh, that that agent, that rock star agent from CAA, uh, who didn't last. But anyway, he Jeffrey felt slighted, and so that was the falling out between uh, Michael and Jeffrey. And so so Jeffrey quit, and it was like a huge deal because Jeffrey had hit after hit with all these animated projects. Plus, Michael didn't like that Jeffrey was sort of taking credit for it. He was like, he was in charge of animation, although rightfully so. I mean, Jeffrey was very involved. So, but Michael didn't like that. So there was ego stuff going on, and Jeffrey left. But he hated Michael at that point because before that, he thought they were friends, and Michael was looking out for him. And they had this slow decline where Jeffrey started realizing, oh, wait a second, this is Hollywood. This guy doesn't care anything about me, and I'm not going to get what I want. And so, so when he left, he was bitter. He said, I'm going to go off. I'm going to make, I got Spielberg, I got Geffen, we got all the money in the world. I'm going to make a studio that is going to not only rival Disney, I'm going to take down Disney. That was his goal. Mm. And, uh, and it was pretty clear. And then he went about doing that. I'm, and I mean, day one, like they didn't even have a studio yet. And he was already calling animators at Disney from the very top guys and going, hey, I want to talk to you. And li- and here's here's what I'll, I'll, the end of this, at least for me, is when he, uh, let's see, after Pocahontas was done, they started working on Prince uh, Prince of Egypt was their first feature film at DreamWorks. And by the time they had some story reel and stuff and had that first musical sequence where Moses is going down the as a baby, going down the river, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, he had a, like a rough cut of that with the great music and all that cut in. And he came to Florida, and this is the part that I remember. I know in California it was probably a little bit more uh, personal going to each, each person, but he made a trip to Florida to raid Florida. And he brought that sequence with him. And what he did was he set up in a, in a hotel room just off Disney property because he didn't want to get in trouble with Disney. And it was literally in Kissimmee there, um, just offsi- outside of it. And it was this little resort area. And then he had his assistant call, hand, you know, call all the animators and key cleanup people and things like that, people that he wanted. And I got one of those calls. And so I went down there, and, and I think we were... What's after Pocahontas? I'm trying to remember what movie. I was, st- I was, in, the, I was in the beginning, I think, phase of, of Milan. So I was developing Mushu at the time. Mm. And so I was in a good spot. I mean, it was something I didn't want to leave, obviously. But he called up and said, hey, can you come down? We're on the premises. Just come over. And, and so he made, made an appointment and went over there. And he showed me that sequence. And it was good. But I was like, wow, that is really cool. And I can't believe you're doing a biblical story, too. That was amazing. And uh, and it was really good and all that and so uh, and he goes so what's it going to take for me to get you to come over to DreamWorks you know and then he just started kind of negotiating and and unfortunately he didn't have what I wanted which was a supervising animator position right was I was I
0: was about to say for for Mulan <laughs> you were a supervising animator on Mushu so that was kind right. of a big deal that was mm-hmm. that was and just I'm just looking at your. um your kind of you know your your vitae right now that was your first big step up as as supervising animator right yeah yeah it was so the timing was just shit for you <laughs> <laughs> I, know. I know
3: and that's why i that's why i went over there so casually i was like mm, this isn't gonna happen there's no way i'm leaving this this spot i love this character and, and i was just really getting into it and um but the amazing thing was he already knew you know, he's like, okay, so he's looking at a paper. I see you're doing Mushu on Milan. Wow, that's that sounds like a great character. Oh, Eddie Murphy. Oh, that's great. I mean, all this had not been released, but he knew it all. So he's telling me what I'm doing, what I'm working on, and uh, I'm just like, oh, oh, you know about that? Yeah, yeah. Well, and he, so we kind of small talk about Mushu and that kind of stuff, and then he's like, well. Unfortunately, on Prison of Egypt, we, you know, our big lead characters are already we've got supervisors for, and he's naming off James Baxter. And yeah, we got this guy, and he's trying to, you know, uh, but he's, you know, he's
0: name dropping. He's seeing he <laughs> He's name dropping
3: like crazy. And what he what he was promising was that he was going to pay a whole lot more. And, and mm-hmm. they he definitely would have done that. And, you know, I would have had to move to California and all that too. But, um, so yeah, it, it didn't work out. It was kind of an easy pass on my end, but um you know, it was it happened. I mean, he was meeting that was how he was rating. It was like he had took it very personally and he went in and he's he was using his power basically to kind of approach everybody that he knew when he worked there and he knew the best guys to go
0: after. And then after that So how do
1: we go Yeah, how do we go from that to wage fixing?
0: So and and stop me if I'm incorrect here Tom, but basically it went from that to every animator now has a lawyer and is demanding ridiculous wages right
2: yes yeah that's and that's step two that which was is what step eventually
0: two. brought the whole industry crashing down
3: well because then Disney did something I don't know right now to me I look at it like it was crazy and stupid I, maybe at the time it made sense but what they no, did was, it was crazy and stupid. It was it was crazy. And <laughs> Basically, all you know. And here's the other thing about the price fixing, just to, so that people listening kind of understand: there is a union in California. There's an animation guild, and so as far as fixed pricing prices for for wages, we do have that. It exists, um, but it's
0: it's a fixed floor.
3: It's a floor. You're right.
0: Right. So what the what the wage fixing uh, incident is that's currently going on right now is a fixed a fixed ceiling, a fixed roof.
3: Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and, and I'm gonna kind of hint that maybe I'm not totally disagreeing with this because here's what ended up happening: is that when there was no ceiling, because it, basically um, DreamWorks just started going crazy and offering big money, and because they had all the money in the world, and they wanted they wanted to hurt Disney, so they'd offer them whatever these guys wanted. I don't know what Glen Keane got offered, but I know it was millions of dollars millions because he was already making a good million or two a year at Disney so this again this is this is when animators became rock stars <laughs> it was a, it was only it was a short few years but it, it was a, a great ride because Disney was making hit after hit right it was that mm-hmm. second Golden age we were getting bonuses after every film. Um, not on top of our decent wage we'd get these bonuses which, which be enough to buy a car or a down payment on a house that kind of thing and we get that after every film we just started getting used to that and then now dreamworks comes around and they're starting to throw around money and going hey you're this level animator you've been there for this many years we're going to pay you that well now you can go to disney and go <laughs> guess what i've been yeah you know i've been offered Talked to jeffrey been offered something and you know, my contract's coming up next year. My contract's not even up, but in a year it will be. I want to negotiate now. And I want to negotiate for more money. And that started happening. And that's when everybody started getting lawyers because Disney would go, well, do you have a lawyer? And they actually wanted you to go lawyer because they didn't want to deal with you. They wanted to deal with your lawyer. And they can make group deals with the lawyer because the lawyer now had about five or ten supervising animators under his roster. And he'd go... He'd start working deals where he's like, well, I already gave you Randy Haycock for this. But now Tom's coming around and he's at this level. He's, you know, he's working on Moosey right now, right? And so, so now
0: now these lawyers are trading like somebody would in big league baseball or something like oh, that. Oh,
3: the lawyers were making money hand over fist. And you'd start getting phone calls at your desk from lawyers now. Hey, I, this, I'm representing Randy Haycock right now. And he mentioned that you might be looking for somebody and, you know, Whoa. And so now you're getting solicited by lawyers. And it really was like baseball, you know, in the day, baseball yeah. trading, you know? And
0: and this is what, like 96, 97?
3: Yeah, the late 90s, um, uh, mid to late, somewhere in there. And um, so, yeah, and, and, and then you would, what happened at Disney is all the animators got greedy. <laughs> I hate to say it, but we really did because we weren't used to that. I mean, you know. Imagine cartoonists all of a sudden becoming rock stars, right? Mm. Like, I'd love to. sure. We all would. It's the same mentality. It's like you know, oh my gosh, people are showing me love, and not only that, money. We we're not used. To, we're artists. We're not used to money.
4: But, but, so but is not that how the system crazy. is supposed to work I mean when CEOs yeah. use that same thing to justify making 400 percent what their what their workers use how come how come when it's guys like you it's it's greed you're just you're you're using the same system that they justify on the other end it's not greed well, it's 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 capitalism it's how the system's supposed to work. Well, we all know that, Brad, but <laughs> the reality
3: of the world is there's a there's a term starving artist for a reason, you know? Unfortunately, well, that, I, well know no no never I, go explain away.
4: that to me. I, I, I honestly don't get that.
3: Well, I mean it's been around since Michelangelo. I mean we've always needed somebody to help us make our art financially. You know, we need those people that are gonna help us pay us. You-
0: You need the patronage.
3: We need that patronage. I'm on Patron too, so I I get that. Um, But yeah, we need that patronage. Um, And Michelangelo wasn't like a rich rock star in his day. You know, I think he lived okay because he was under you know the Pope's um, you know watchful eye, I guess, financially. But uh, and a lot a lot more so than his fellow artists who were starving, right? But um, that still continues today. You know, I mean, I think as graphic artists, as animators, as comic strip artists, as comic book artists, we're used to going, okay, this pays that. I'm going to do twice as much work, but man, I love it and I'm passionate about it. I'll do it. Mm-hmm. And
0: well, and and get back to, to Disney's counter to this DreamWorks thing that, would, that okay, yeah. started so to wreck everything.
3: Here's the rest of that story. So then when DreamWorks started going crazy and really just offering crazy things and we started seeing animators fly over there. Disney then started going, and, and like I said, at the same time, we're all getting lawyers and going, okay, well, I'm, I might want to go over there. I'm going to start negotiating. Disney's rebuttal to that was rather than like tightening up or anything like that and going, no, 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 and maybe just kind of offering little little tidbits and stuff, they went the opposite direction. They said, oh, we're going to outdo do DreamWorks. We're actually going to go, literally, I had signed a contract a year ahead of time before it was up it was like a five-year contract I, I was up to year four and this again was like the beginning of M- Milan or something and uh, I had just signed a contract f- to add another three years to it uh, a year early and got a, a big bump I mean it was like you know a, another whatever uh, uh, I I, don't know, I won't even say but it was a big bump and uh, and then they came to me and said Tom we know that you've just negotiated a new one just a couple months back and everything. But just so you know, there's, you know, we've since then have had a lot of um, other animators come in and they are even at a, uh, they haven't been here as long as you and stuff. And they're, they're starting to make more about close. So if you'd like to add another year or two, we'd, we'd be happy to negotiate again with you.
0: This and is right after you signed a contract in advance. They wanted they want you to sign a double advance contract. For yes. two for two bumps.
3: Add another year or two, and they and they would literally tell me. And if you add another year, we'll give you X amount. And it was like almost doubling what they'd already given me. And literally, this was what was happening rampant across all, and it was key players. To what and, end?
1: Just to make sure they don't have to worry about this again in a couple months.
3: Yeah. Truly, that's what it was. It was just to say, we got this guy for five years, or we got this guy for, you know, they wanted to wrap everybody up pretty tight. And because the ceiling was going up, it kept going up, and they couldn't control it. Mm -hmm. And partially because they were doing it, but partially because Jeffrey was doing it. They just, the price was going up so fast that literally a month, what was going rate for a mid-level animator, you know, three months ago... Was was no longer anymore. Now it's it add another thousand dollars a week because that's what it's at. Add another two thousand in a month. You know, it was literally just going through the roof. And because oh, and that's the other thing that was feeding that was that we were all talking. <laughs> mm-hmm. this, is, this is I think the answer to your question, Brad. Is yeah, we started talking to each other and going, man, I I heard that this guy in California and and you know he's he's on Hercules. He did uh, this character. And he's been there about this many years. I heard he just negotiated and he's got, you know, he's making almost 6000 a week. And I'm uh, like, oh, wow. Well, Tom, you're about to, you should try for that. And, you know, our wives were saying, oh, you, yeah, you should be getting more money. You know, it was just rampant. And now here's the, you know, not to end this completely, but here's what ended up happening was we really killed ourselves. I mean, we killed the animation industry. And I—that's what I feel bad about—is that, and it wasn't all us. And 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 Brad, you're right. Artists should be paid, and and maybe it was in a way where it should have gone from our point of view. Mm-hmm. But but the films paid for it. I mean, they got to be so expensive to make that mm-hmm. now you had to look. Disney's at the point now where, uh, and by the way, since then all the all the all the prices have fallen drastically. I mean, the guys at Disney now are not making near the kind of money that, that we were making during oh God, that. Time. I'm glad
4: you said that. Cause I had, I had my bags half packed over here. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I've in California too, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think that's
0: the answer to your question though, Brad. I, yeah. That's how, I mean, a, a capitalist system is supposed to work like the, the, the wages are supposed to be what the market can bear. the, the two opposite ends of the spectrum that always wreck this one side is, is greed. And and, well, I mean, they're both different aspects of greed. One is I want too much money and one is I'm not going to pay. And uh, what was happening at that time was these animators were driving the race through the roof and the uh, people in charge were letting it happen for an ego battle. And they, they should have been smart enough to look at the films and go, we cannot bear this cost, right? The people, may, the people agreeing to these terms should have, should have looked at the market and said, we cannot bear this cost. Uh, yeah, and I guess that's
4: the, that's the part of the equation that I was missing because right. in my mind, when they're, go, you know, Tom was telling us about getting the bump and then getting another contract and getting another bump. In my mind, that, what, what I say to myself is, well, <laughs> if they didn't have the money, they wouldn't no. be offering it. See, but and, what and what the the ingredient that I'm missing here is that this was also a pissing match between right. these two companies, right? And and specifically yeah. bec- between these two men.
0: And the other, I think, the yeah. other ingredient that that you're missing, and that a lot of people miss, and hopefully that in listening to this show they'll take away from this is when you're dealing with big companies like multi multi billion again B Bs B. not M's multi billion dollar conglomerate corporations uh taking a loss is no big deal like
1: i think the most important thing that people listening should take away from this especially you younger kids is that this is a great example of why you need to stop after you've read a news story like katzenberg and jobs and apple implied in animation wage fixing read the article stop take a deep breath, maybe a nibble of bread and a sip of water, (laughs) and think about what really happened Mm -hmm. before you start assigning these vaudevillian roles to everyone Mm. and take the tumbler with pitchforks and and torches. Because here we have someone who was kind of in the trenches at the time uh, explaining how there was, you know more than one cause to this problem. And it wasn't as simple as the corporations are all evil and everyone's, you know, they're all wringing their hands trying to exploit, you know, the proletariat animators.
2: Um, And
0: and let's get to that too, because the fallout of this, right, this crazy ceiling going through the ceiling, the, the price hike, was that the heads of these studios finally got together informally like again this is informal this isn't like they this isn't a bunch of again like scott said it's not a bunch of vaudeville villains like wringing their hands and waxing their mustaches and (laughs) right that's just not Mm -hmm. the scenario basically uh katzenberg and um uh i guess it would have been cat cat mule at the time and um who else uh, was involved well, I mean, all, uh, Steve, all if all Apple's the, involved, then that brings Steve Jobs yeah, into Job, it, right? Yeah, Jobs was involved. I mean, it was basically it was Pixar, Lucas, uh, DreamWorks, Disney uh, in the end because they were attached to Pixar at the, at the time that this all broke. But uh, all these heads got together and they went, "All right, guys, look, we can't keep doing this to each other. Like the the market cannot bear this. We we've had our ego, we've had our pissing match." We've wrecked all of our animation companies. Like we've wrecked ourselves,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and and now the you know it's the whole the the trickle down economics thing. Trickle down e- economics only works when things go to shit. I, mean, that, yeah. <laughs> I think that's the thing that people need to understand. Is finally these these heads start to feel the pressure of this because they've got shareholders who are now coming down on them because the the films now are costing more than they're making animation departments are showing a loss across the board and everybody got together and said all right guys we can't do this anymore we just can't do this anymore and that's how it started and initially uh, and, you know and I say that and it's like you hear it and you go well there's nothing wrong with that that's just a bunch of people agreeing that they're not going to raid each other anymore
2: mm-hmm.
0: what what broke it was this was sony coming out of the scene in the early 2000s um total newcomer to animation industry they just they're like this startup all the other animation companies went, ah, great. Another contender. You know, just what we need. More, more people taking a slice of a pie that's already too small because we're feeding the whole pie to the animators, right? Mm-hmm. And the uh, um Catmill and Jobs and Katzenberg all sat down and went, somebody needs to get over to Sony and get them on this no raid policy. Mm. And that's what they called it—the no-rate agreement. So they, there are court documents where they're emailing each other and saying, "Nobody's at Son- We don't have anybody at Sony. No one at Sony has agreed to this." And they're starting to poach. Mm-hmm. Well, somebody's got to get over there and get them to cut it out. And and this is how this whole court case broke: is these guys are emailing each other back and forth, and they're saying things like. Uh, you know, hey, there's some HR thing happening this weekend. I'm going to be down there. I'm going to see Zemeckis. I'm going to talk to him and say, hey, you know, uh, come on. <laughs> yeah, get in <laughs> the club. Yeah, yeah. Get in the club here, buddy. Let's not kill each other. That we've, we've already destroyed the industry. Let's not continue yeah. to destroy it.
1: And someone was killed, and there was an investigation, and you can see the uh, fictional adaptation of that. It's called Rising Sun. <laughs> um, it features uh, Wesley Snipes. And Sean Connery—that's actually about uh, animation <laughs> price fixing. That's a little known fact from *Surviving*. That
0: <laughs> <It> is, <laughs> is not a fact at all. Well. Uh, but I mean, this is how—I mean, this is how it broke. Basically, these emails got out. I think—I uh, don't—don't know how. And these the are old emails. Oh yeah, very yeah. old emails. I don't know how the government finally got involved, but somebody leaked. And said, hey, this is this is wage fixing. Yes. It's
4: illegal. illegal. What they're doing is illegal. I mean, right. well, you're you're putting a very calm face on it, but sure. what they did was outside of the law.
0: And at the time, I I would imagine, because again, these people are not villains. I would imagine at the time when these guys were having these conversations, this wasn't there was no malicious intent here. They were literally trying to save the animation industry. And they weren't they weren't saying, hey, let's go. You know, screw the animators. Hey, let's um, you know line our pockets with more and more more millions of. Let's take the money away from them and put it in our pockets. They were just trying to to stop the bleeding that they caused by getting in this pissing match in the first place. And I I think in in a similar way in which the the Apple e-books price fixing thing happened with the Big Five. Uh, the the reason why the Big Five settled, they knew it was illegal. Steve Jobs and Apple went to court mm-hmm. and got nailed by the DOJ because they said, I don't see how this is illegal. We made an agreement with another company. How is this illegal? Mm. Somebody had to come in and go, well, look, you're fixing the market. It's going to hear the ramifications of this. And I think that's the case a lot of times with, these, with people like Jeffrey. I mean, these forward thinkers, they're looking way down the road and they're going, we have to do this. There is no... There is no recourse here. In order to stop, to staunch <clears throat> this we and save the industry, we have to do this thing.
1: Do yeah. you think that Steve Jobs, sick in bed, was looking ahead going, oh boy, uh, some chickens are coming home to roost with this price fixing and wage fixing, and then his wife comes in and is like, Steve, you need chemo, and he's looking at all these things, he's like, I'll stick with the cucumbers. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe... Maybe it's time to get out while the getting's... Again. Wow, that was dark. That's dark. Please edit that out in post. I'm getting, staying well, in. This is what happens when you don't let me curse, Tom.
2: It builds up oh, into, a, again. into a dark ball. <laughs> I, um, thought,
3: I thought that was why you were being quiet for a while there. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't know what to say.
1: Yeah, if I can't say the F word, like how do I express this without the F word? Well, the yeah. the,
0: the tangent here is that uh, Tom gave us uh, gave us a little bit of hell on on Twitter, saying that he's you know he's he likes to listen to our episodes, but he's got
1: kids who will wander us, by occasionally. He didn't and, give a, he gave us he double hockey That's right, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I would
0: have What's said hell. You? Come on.
1: After after you said that, I thought
0: we don't swear that much, so I went back and listened to the episodes, thinking that it was going to be Scott. Well, I always think that blame that Scott, me that Scott was the problem. <laughs> that he was going to be the one, and it turns out that I'm the fucking sailor here. Whoa! <laughs> I love how you put that. Thank <laughs> you.
1: Uh, so, uh, I, I I have t- one question about animation before we move on to the other stuff that you've done because that was only it's only been half your life animation. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I've only met Glenn Keane... Uh, once, uh, I met him at the NCS Rubin Awards. Um, myself, Chris Straub, Dave Kellett and Kate Beaton and Scott Campbell were all kind of huddled together and he came over to talk to us and just started picking our brain about web comics. Like, hey. how does this work? How does that work? And how does this work? Hey. And we're all just kind of like pinching each other and just yeah. kind of, uh, like one person's engaging him the other people the other five of us are just looking at each other going oh my god we're talking to Glenn Keane <laughs> and uh his wife walks up and he says hey uh sweetie um i want you to come over and meet the future of cartooning this is i want to do what they're doing mm. and i remember thinking okay um either what i do is way more important than i thought or poor Glenn, he's, <laughs> like, uh, yeah. let's take him upstairs, right? Like, <laughs> <What>? <laughs> it's time for his pill and his nap. <laughs> like, but because it just, Glenn, anyone, like you're talking about Jeffrey Katzenberg, all that stuff, it just seems so big. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, what, and you were even saying, like, when you first see your your dailies, Up there next to what Glenn animated, and you're like, oh, God, right? Like, Mm -hmm. what is, how, how rough is that transition period? Is there like a big imposter syndrome that happens? Like, do you just not have the time to worry about it? I, you know, I think,
3: I think when you're at Disney, it takes a good five, seven years before you start going, oh, wait, maybe I do belong here, (laughs) you know, because you're surrounded by people that, You know, And we're all animation geeks before we even step in the door. So you know pretty much everybody you're about to work with. When I first started at Disney, I came right out of CalArts. I have a twin brother. We haven't even mentioned him. That's weird. Tony. And Tony and I (laughs) went to uh, California Institute of the Arts back in 88. And we only went for a year and a half. So we finished our freshman year and halfway into our sophomore year, we were running out of money quick uh, because my mom was paying for it. And uh, so we knew we had to get into Disney. We heard they were coming, and I'm trying to make this short. But we put our portfolios together, and we got into this internship for Disney. And, and this was back in the day where they would take people halfway through. It was rare. I mean, they wouldn't normally take sophomores. And actually, our internship was just for juniors and seniors for that reason. But they let us get looked at, and, and fortunately, they liked our stuff. And enough so that we were the only sophomores that got taken and so we got into that internship, and um, yeah, immediately now you're at the, at Disney, and they're working on Little Mermaid. That was what they were doing during our internship. And so you go right from CalArts to uh, being at Disney as an intern for about nine weeks, and you're seeing all these guys that you've you've heard about, and, and a lot of them have visited CalArts. They would teach there or be guest lecturers, so it's not like it was, you know, you'd never seen them before um but you were just in awe of everything around you and i remember those days like it was yesterday because uh it it would be like you know for for you guys but me too because i'm a huge comic strip fan you know when you first met schultz you know mm-hmm. uh, and and i'm sure i think we probably all have i met him at a uh, san antonio no.
2: what <laughs> oh, oh sorry Tom. <laughs> no, you don't
3: know who a, little you're to. <laughs> a little bit blacklisted little uh,
1: blacklisted right until he, after he died. Oh boy. Then they let me in the clubhouse after the coolest kid had passed on. <laughs> Got to meet his wife though. Oh, okay. And she is the best.
3: Yeah, I've heard I've met her. I, she seems like, you know, great. Um anyway, uh yeah, so I mean that takes a long time to die off when you've been seeing, you know, so fast forward uh and maybe 5 years, 7 years into my career and uh You know, Glenn's trying to find animators to work on Pocahontas. And I put my name in the basket. I'm in Florida, he's in California. So he only needed a couple in Florida to help out. Um, But you had literally this is, and this is a little anecdote, but it was the first time in my career after I'd already been there and worked on maybe three or four films um, that somebody said, We need to see your portfolio. And Glenn was literally having a portfolio review of every animator that wanted to be on his team on Pocahontas because it was yeah. going to be such hard drawing and he wanted to see life drawings from everybody, and so it was very intimidating. You know, I mean, you knew you were trying out for the major leagues even though you're already in the major leagues. Wow. You know, um, <laughs> yeah. So that was super intimidating working with him on Pocahontas, and I mean, none of us. But the nice thing is, there was about twenty animators that ended up working. It was one of the biggest animation units Disney ever had, because it was he, she was in almost every shot. We were going like at a snail's pace on every single scene because of how hard we had, and we had to redo it each scene about three times at least. Um, so, you know, and he had to touch every single scene because nobody knew how to draw a Pocahontas like Glenn did. I mean, there were a couple guys that got close that were really good, but. She Literally, if you look at model sheets, if you look at animation roughs of Glenn's and she's singing and turning her head, if you really look at, because I did, um, at every single one of those drawings, (coughs) they look almost like a different person. I mean, he had a way to draw her that from an upshot she looked like this and oh now by the way you turn the nose totally upside down and, you know and oh and the eye shape when it's tilted up it looks radically different now it's a square you know i mean you none of it made sense and and but he was the only one that really understood it i mean that's what i found on pocahontas was that glenn was such a master that he can make it look completely different yet it still like looked like pocahontas and we would just scratch our heads and go, I don't know what she looks like from the side. I don't know what she looks like. I've got a whole new expression that I haven't seen on a model sheet. What do I do? <laughs> you know. And so we were, I mean, literally, I, that film was over and I still felt like I didn't know how to draw her. So yeah, that was kind of tough. But, but it was only because he was so good.
1: I bet, I bet, um, I bet there was a similar um, learning curve for people that had to animate like Sanders on Lilo and Stitch.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that.
1: Um, well, anyway, let's transition from animation because I, oh. like, I feel like that's probably all you ever get asked.
0: Well, I actually want to talk to you, Tom, more about animation, but your animation career after Disney. Okay. Uh, if, if I understand it correctly, you and your brother left traditional studio animation to move into... New media animation. You started your own animation studio, right?
3: Well, yes and no. Um, people pair Tony and I up nowadays because we have a Facebook page called the Bancroft Brothers, mm-hmm. and we did that a couple years ago. After one San Diego Comic Con, we were just talking about it, and Tony was non-existent on the internet. He didn't. He had a Facebook page, but that was it. He doesn't have. He's not on DeviantArt. He's not. He wasn't on Tumblr, or Twitter, or any of those things. I don't even think he had a website at the time. And I'm like, Tony, you really got to get out there. you got to be on there. Because I was starting to really get into it. Like I said, this was a, uh, two or three years ago. And so I, I, I kind of pushed him into that. I said, let's just do a Facebook page together. And, uh, and I was in transition. I had just left a company that I had started, Funny Pages Productions, with a, a, a buddy and partner of mine. And we'd run it for, together in, here in Tennessee for about seven years. So that, to answer your question, that was the studio that I had here in Tennessee. And a few years before that, Tony had left Disney um, uh, years before that, but he'd started a company called Tunacious Animation and started doing some commercials and animation projects of, of his own. And that went bankrupt, and de- or not bankrupt, but it just went under. It didn't work out in the long run after he'd done it for a few years. So we had had our own sort of separate studios um, mine was much smaller, more more illustration and character design-based, more development kind of stuff.
0: During that time, you also wrote two or three best-selling books on character design, yeah?
3: Yeah. Uh, right after I left Disney, I did the first one within the first, I don't know, year or so of leaving Disney the second time. <laughs> I left <laughs> Disney twice. So in 2000, I left right after uh, Tarzan um, and went to Big Idea Productions in Chicago, and they do VeggieTales. Um, and worked on that. It was computer animation, so I learned some computer animation, but I ended up directing uh, a Larry Boy 2D series for them. Uh, And that only lasted a couple years because then they went bankrupt. And then I came back to Disney, so this was my sort of second term, but it was only for about eight months, and it was to help finish up Brother Bear. And then right after that, that, when that was over, I started finding Pages Productions out of Florida just by myself for about a year. Um, and then then moved to Tennessee uh, and and told Rob, hey, why don't you come on along? And and we did it together um, for like the next seven years because right at that time they shut down the Florida studio and, and let go of about two or three hundred people, and Rob was one of them. So that was when we moved to Tennessee. Um, so yeah, I've been here for about ten years, uh, and the last three have been on my own. I left Funny Pages, and the we were art directing uh, a big web kids website um and we i left that too and uh so for the last three years i've I've worked from home as a contractor on a show for cbn it's a christian show called superbook and i'm the head of character design oh wow oh you know it
1: the old one yeah
3: do you know the old one probably
1: the the one that was like anime right
3: yeah yeah
1: yeah superbook yeah from the early
3: 80s it was one of the first Anime. I mean, this is a little bit of trivia. It was a Christian show, but it was one of the first animes that kind of came to the U.S.
1: Do you guys ever watch Superbook? Uh,
0: No, I'm not familiar with it at all.
1: Oh man, it was like the. It's the weirdest thing. Now thinking about it, as a kid, it as a kid, you didn't question anything, but like, no. So it's an imported anime, but it was basically these kids exploring the Bible. Yeah.
3: Yeah, that I mean, basically, it's this little boy and little girl and their pet robot, <laughs> of course, yep. Gizmo, and they would go back in time into the Superbook, which was a disguised name for the Bible, right? Uh, because again, it CBN was trying to get into Japan, get Bibles into Japan, um, and and later in China, and so calling it Superbook was a way to get in. Um, so anyway, they made this whole series around basically being able to get uh, Bibles uh, into into Japan. But they hired the studio in Japan that did Speed Racer. And it was just after Speed Racer, I think, that they did Superbook. So, you know, like early anime people, geeks, actually kind of respect the Superbook series because of the the lineage of people that worked on Superbook. are All went on to Studio Ghibli and stuff. I mean, there were kind of some big names that started out on Superbook in This is what I hear. I'm not a a huge anime guy. But um, anyway, so we've we've relaunched. Actually, Funny Pages, me and Rob had done the pilot and helped develop the new Superbook. So that was my connection there, is that Mm. we we created the new version of it. And so now i am had a character design on season two and three. Um, What
0: what was the transition like for you going from a, a... I mean, was that your intention when you left Disney? Was it like... I, you know, I see that, that new media and technology is going to change the animation industry and, you know, I'm, I'm going to get out and do my own thing. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't like what, what caused that? Was it the, was it the rampant crashing of the industry from, from the animators luring up? Was it the, the onset of technology, um, you know, you know it,
3: and, it was. It was a number of those things. And, and def- definitely, I wouldn't say I had this plan. You know, I mean, there was no grand plan. It was steps, and just like anything, where I, what the first step was I realized I was in Florida, and it was doing funny pages on my own out of my house, just freelance. And I started realizing that all my clients weren't in Florida. I was working strictly through the email with with everybody, somewhere in Chicago and somewhere in LA, you know, I was working with Disney publishing and doing, you know, storybooks for them and a lot of children's book illustration and comic book things for a place in Chicago. And anyway, I just started going, well, I can live anywhere. And, and because this, you know, it was, the internet was still fairly new. This was like, uh, 2003. Okay. It wasn't new, but you know what I mean? It was that, that thought that you could work from anywhere was kind of new, I guess. Mm -hmm. So, I started going to my wife and I'm like, you know what? And the price house prices in Florida had, since we were in Chicago, had had gone through the roof. And so we were, and of course later it dropped like crazy, but this was during their heyday. Uh, And so we came back to Florida and uh, weren't working at Disney anymore. And so I was like, well, if I'm not at Disney, there's nothing really here for us. You know, we had some friends, but I mean, work-wise there wasn't. I said, let's just go live where we want to live, and let's live less expensively, because now I'm a freelancer. I'm a little scared and about bringing in the money for my family. I want to have, you know, and so we just kind of a, a dart on the dartboard picked Franklin, Tennessee, right outside of Nashville. It's this mm. beautiful little town.
1: That's weird. I know a couple people that moved. I know a couple artists that all chose Tennessee to move to randomly. Really? You know Scott Sava?
3: I do. He he moved here because of me.
2: What? <laughs>
0: <laughs>
3: Tom now, is the reason. I mean, I was I was one of the reasons. I'm not going to take all the credit, but He's I, the he came down. Why he, all he was friends moved with my Tennessee. my twin brother in California, and they. Um, so then Tony introduced me to Scott, you know, via the phone and internet, and then he said, "Yeah, we're we're kind of looking to move," and he was kind of, you know. Under, underwater, I think, a little on his house or something. It was before the bad times in California. So, I mean, I think, I know he sold and, and did well. But he's just like, you know, we want to make a fresh start. And I said, you got to come to Franklin. And so I started selling Franklin before he even came to visit. Uh-huh. And yeah. he, he uh-huh. came down with his wife and family, and they loved it. And, and yeah. we had Big Idea was here. Uh, they do VeggieTales. They moved from Chicago, uh, about, like, literally three months after I moved here, 10 years ago, they moved here and and set up office um
1: so Naples, another one are you do you work with tenaple and doug
3: tenaple I, we almost did <laughs> i you're, almost worked you're with a doug.
1: monster you are taking everyone to tennessee <laughs>
3: he didn't come here because of me he came here oh. because of big idea but i did i was starting to get to know him online a little bit and uh so i was one of the first people that he talked to when he was like thinking about moving down because he knew i was here um so now i don't claim him but um but I've had lunch with him a few times since. And I almost worked on the new VeggieTel show that he's uh, directing. The DreamWorks just wasn't paying any money. <laughs> to go full circle on our earlier story, now DreamWorks isn't paying anything. So, <laughs> now they're the opposite. <laughs> so, I, I, yeah, I didn't take
0: that job. But Well, um, that's the, it's all that wage fixing. That's why. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: You, it, you made the bed, fun. Tom, lay in it. Yeah, it's all <laughs> your
0: fault. You <laughs> oh, I ruined it for future generations. Well, uh, I kind of feel that way a little bit. Well, no. this that's actually something I wanted to ask you about animation, too. We, um, you know, At Toonhound, we have animators, and and uh, uh, we work with them on projects as they come up. And one of the big gripes with the the current generation of animators and the, the coming up generation of animators is that because of technology, any... Anybody can just claim to be an animator now, and they can just sit down in front of Flash. They yeah. can build. They can build a little rig for a character, and they can just start going. They don't have to have the skill sets that people used to have. And now the opposite problem is true. And this gets into freelancing, and we should have Katie on again, uh, our lawyer, to talk about this at some point. But um, these animators are now undercutting each other on on their value, mm-hmm. um, and it's something we probably don't talk about enough on this show. But you have animators. Going in and and saying, uh, you know, a company will start shopping around trying to find a commercial gig and they'll go to like us, the to our animators and say, all right, you know, here's what we want. And our animators say, OK, it's this much per minute. And they'll go, whoa, wait a minute. I found this kid on DeviantArt that'll do the exact same job for this much a minute. Yeah. And, and now we're in a position where we have to make a decision. Do we let this job go or do? you know and potentially be dry for a few weeks Hmm. or do we or do we take the job at the lower rate because some idiot kid who lives in their mom's house and has no real job and has never had any kind of training so doesn't have any student loans for animation no
4: bills to pay yeah
0: yeah no bills to pay is willing to do work for next to nothing and and let's be clear that this trickles into traditional animation one of the reasons why DreamWorks can now get away with not paying anything is because they are a whole, you know. Now we have the opposite problem. Whereas before we had animators charging too much, well now we have a bunch of kids who want to who want to work in animation who don't charge enough. They undervalue their skill set. Yeah. Well, and
3: that's a good point. And, and to answer your question, do we do we you know drop out? I say yes, you do. I mean, basically, you go to them and you say, "Well, sure, you can go. You're always gonna be able to find somebody cheaper on DeviantArt or elsewhere. Some kid out of school, but you're if you want a good quality product, that's what we're gonna give you. And so you got to fight that fight with them. I've been through this yeah, for years. We Something can't even s- off
1: from that though. So
3: oh, you can't up from quality? Nah. <laughs> Oh well, you know really. I'm gonna I'm gonna argue that I Scott's right listening. about
4: that because in a lot of ways people don't know Aye. or don't
3: care about the quality. Well, yeah, don't care is true, but
0: that's to I, me I would... that's the biggest one now is people don't the people asking for animation and people asking for cartooning and that they have no they they don't understand the difference between good and bad. Right. Yeah. They, they tend to come from these big, again, big companies, big conglomerates, big corporations, and they can't see the difference between good animation and bad animation, good cartooning, and bad cartooning. Dude, this goes they across, just
4: n- across art. You talk to anybody that yeah, used man. to be a wedding photographer and they yeah. will tell oh, you yeah. that they've been replaced by people with their phones doing point and shoot. Uh, it, yeah. it goes right across the spectrum.
3: Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, yeah, there's been a devaluing of, you know, creative things for years and, and we can go into outsourcing and that's a big part of it also. But, um, but yeah, I, I agree that uh, there's been a negative to deviant art as much as there's been a positive, you know, cause I'm a big fan of deviant art, but the negative has been that it's become sort of a portfolio review thing for these, these guys that are just looking for an artist that's yes. cheap. And, uh, because you see, their commission prices. Oh, I do commissions. They all, do, everybody does commissions, right? Oh well, guess what? That commission could be my designing my character for my, you know, for my right. company, right? And oh, it's only twenty dollars. Awesome. Well, they were thinking that commission was just a little fan art for somebody, but now it's become a client that's asking for the same price. Yeah. You know, and how do you then up it after that? You know, because you're like, well, I already have it posted. You posted it was twenty dollars. So I just want my project to be something I'm actually going to use for my logo. You know, well, uh, okay. <laughs> and they're young; they don't know, so they just okay. You're right; it is the same. Mm-hmm. You know, because that's what the suits will go. Well, you're doing the same work, right? Why same pencil. More? Same. taking more time, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, no, but but you're kind of going to use it on all, everything you do and it's going to continue on forever maybe and you, maybe you're in the next Apple and I just did your logo for $20. Yeah. Well, you know, so those kind of hurdles are always going to be there, but the, the internet has, has definitely made it. Uh, now, now, the flip side of that is what, like I was starting to tell you, Corey, is that I learned when I had my own company, Funny Pages, that we had to say, okay, we're going to there is a line. We have to make a line. and we have to for, for us to support our families, we have to do it. But we have to say, we have experience, and you're coming to us with us because we have experience. And maybe you guys in animation can't say that, but you definitely could in the strip side of of what you do because you guys are well known in comic strips for sure. But obviously, you have to be able to say, this is why we can compete with those talented young kids is, is we're going to bring professionalism and a quality to the work that you can't get with them. And you can prove that. I mean, they'll still hire that guy. And I, and I usually say that to the client, like, you know what, if you really want to test that, go hire that guy and do that project. But, you know, let me know how it went, Mm -hmm. you know, and I don't say it. I sometimes, I rarely say that because it's, it's pretty bitter, but, but, You can kind of, you can paint that picture to them and say, here's what's going to probably happen, you know, and um, if you still want to do that, that's fine. You know, I totally get it. If it's just about the numbers, I'm not your guy, you know, so you have to be able to be, have some confidence and really that confidence comes
4: from experience. Well, and you know. it's, it's also salesmanship, right? I mean, this, this is what would happen if you were in any kind of a, a, a sales negotiating standpoint, you would emphasize your strengths. And in that, in yeah. your case, that's your, that's the intangible, your experience, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and we would all, you
3: know, and same with pricing on things, you know, I would always be pushing to price things higher and, uh, You know, there were times that I would be conflict, you know, with my partner on that, and then he, and then we we'd price it higher, and almost every time we'd still get the job. I'm like, I don't, I can't remember, but maybe once or twice we didn't get the job because we priced it too high. Mm -hmm.
2: This is an episode Uh,
0: that we're going to have to have at some point talking to creators about about pricing. pricing. I know I've got I've got some stories, and Scott and Brad. I know you guys have stories about. You know, you try to convince um, young artists, and please note when you're listening to the show, when we say young artists, we just mean people new to a field or the industry. We're not talking about young people. Right? Uh, It's it's not an ageism thing. It's it's people new to what they're doing. Um, Maybe we should say green artists, but we always talk to these people about raising their rates. And I have multiple stories where artists just tell me I'm nuts. Mm. It's like if I if I raise my rate on this, I won't sell any. Or I'll sell half as many, and it's like, yeah, but if you're charging twice as much, you'll make the same amount of money. It's irrelevant. (laughs) Like you don't, and they never, they never believe me, and inevitably will convince somebody to bring their rates up, and then they'll, you know, and then they'll see the light, and and it's good for everyone in the industry, and it's a, it's such a balancing act, right? Because the fear is that you'll get into the situation that like you guys you animators were in Tom back in the day is where people are just jacking their rates through the roof. And, you know, and and it becomes one of those questions of well, what will the market bear? But uh I think that when it comes to individual pricing for freelancers, that's a true what will the market bear scenario. Mm-hmm. Because now you're in a place in which the market, you have direct because of new technology, which you know, new media, we talk about that. It's kind of the key of our show, right? Mm-hmm. Because of this this new technology you have a direct line to your market and now we're in a situation where you go here's my price what will you pay as opposed to a studio or an executive being the one issuing the payment and you know and we talk about it a lot follow the dollar keep in mind that these guys uh, uh, big companies they don't care they can fail they can afford to fail and in some scenarios it's good for them to fail and they don't they don't mind going bankrupt. They don't mind crushing their company, particularly the guys cutting the checks, because they're always safe. Always. <laughs> the people making those decisions are always, always safe.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, I don't know how you guys do it. I I toyed with the idea of animating PvP for a very short period of time. And um uh Robert Kirkman hooked me up with his guy at Circle of Confusion and um
0: you're an agency in Hollywood. If anybody's uh, unfamiliar, you've
1: probably seen their name on The Walking Dead, that super successful thing. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> he's never but, right. But um, I mean, he would pitch things, and we would we would sit and talk. Like, I remember at San Diego one year, I I left the booth to go talk to some guys from Nelvana, and learned learned things as I, as I go. Where you'd sit down, they'd talk to you. They really want to make PvP like a like a, a I don't know, ten episode animated sitcom. Try it on the web first. Yeah, then put it on TV. And um, like at one point, Nelvana was talking to us, and I wanted to bring um, Chris on to write with me, and they said, "Well, we can't because in Canada, you can only have a certain percentage of people that are American working on it, and you're it." <laughs> <laughs> um, and then that nothing ever came of it. But at one point, Sony wanted to put it on Crackle and it was X amount of, I think it was like, it was going to end up being maybe 11,000 an episode with a built in $20,000 option. If it went to TV and I didn't oh. want any of that. Really? <laughs> Sold. You know how many guys would take that
3: deal? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, how, long, some, how long are these? they're only a couple minutes long correct
1: they're only a couple minutes long yeah seven maybe seven minutes yeah i
3: mean it's not great but what i'm saying is there's there's a long line of people that would take that deal
1: (laughs) right so i went to my friends who work in the business and they said well don't mention me because it can get hairy but that's a crap deal and keep in mind that crackle is really difficult to work with and it's going to be a lot of work and they're going to make a lot of changes
0: well and what go back to what year this was too because remember there was a
1: seven, six or seven no so
0: this is so you you
1: were at the tail end of the the i had just met I just started to get to know Will, so it was when Acquisitions Incorporated first started. So
0: you're at the tail end of of the prices going through the roof on animation. So now you you were coming right in when all the studios were slashing what they would pay. So yeah, it would make sense for an animator to say to you, "That's a terrible deal," <laughs> because they yeah. just came off of five years of. Yeah,
2: good point. Well, it, what they yeah. weren't animators; That's- they were
1: just people that had worked with Sony and stuff. And ah, one yeah. person had just actually had a a web series we're dealing with crackle and it was bad. But anyway, not that it was n- bad to do it, but just the the price should be better and this built-in TV option is just a way for them to get a cheap TV option and that should be higher. Yeah. And tell your guy to negotiate. And I went back and he was basically are you on your mind? <laughs> like you're going to you should accept this right now. We're not going to negotiate this. And I said, "Well, I have friends telling me this is this is bad." And he's like, "Well, who are your friends?" And I'm like, uh why well, don't want to say they asked me not to say and he's like well we're not going to listen to them and i said well i'm out i don't want to do it and uh it was the scariest month of my life because apparently the worst thing you could tell sony or anyone in hollywood is you're not interested <laughs> Oh man!
2: because
1: because they're like what he's not interested and then it would be like okay we'll give you 11000 an episode with a $20,000 option if it goes to TV and a bag of M&Ms now. now. <laughs> right? But it yeah. was all this like, in, right? <laughs> yeah, like we're going to make you executive producer. You're going to get your, your own card. That was a big thing like, your name, solo title card. <laughs> right. Executive so
0: now, producer. And now they get into wheeling and dealing. And now the the pressure tactics come in. Anybody who hasn't worked in Hollywood before, it gets messy quickly.
1: And and so, I basically, the, the big thing that scared me off forever, because I just couldn't handle it, is, I, he goes, I don't understand what your reservation is. This was the guy repping me. And I said, well, it kind of feels like you're repping Sony now. Like, it kind of feels like you're on Sony's side mm-hmm. to get me to agree. And he's like, well, what can I do to make you feel that I'm on your side? <laughs> and I said, well represent me get more money and make sure that my webcomic thing that i've set up isn't harmed because i make a living off this i provide for my family with it and i have to make sure that um at the end of this i didn't give up the ability to make money on a webcomic and it's was something i just kept driving home to him so this was maybe the fourth time he had heard me say that and he didn't let me finish the sentence and he goes no one gives a shit about your stupid fucking webcomic, Scott. It's small beans, these guys. No one gives a shit. <laughs> and Wait, I was this, like...
3: This was your attorney?
1: This or was my agent? agent. Agent. Wow. My representation. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, you all right. No, no, I let no. him go. Yeah. No, now he's... You can see his name on The Walking Dead every week.
3: <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> that I was like...
0: A good ending.
1: <laughs> what
3: that wasn't a good ending for you. <laughs> you're you like oh and he's actually doing really good
0: <laughs> well i mean wow, who cares but he's no of
1: course i wish him well yeah it i think that i think that i'm embarrassed by it for me i feel like this guy went back to kirkman and said don't ever don't ever send one of your friends to me again like yeah mm. only send now, people that know how willing to play look I
0: think you handle that situation perfectly fine, and I and this is another. The topic best we part
1: need- was the best part was Will said, uh, "That's a terrible deal." Tell him I said so, and so finally he goes, "Well, who is giving you this advice?" And I said, "Well, Will Wheaton." And he goes, "The kid from Star Trek?" <laughs> and I said, among other things, "Yeah." And he goes,
2: "What the fuck <laughs> is that guy doing?" We're not
1: listening to Will Wheaton, Scott. And I'm like, "All right, I'm out." Like. <laughs> It was just so scary. Ugh. It was not meant no, for me. But look, Scott, I'm not
3: going to count that f bomb because it was in the voice of the agent.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. All right, Tom. Look, here's the reality of the situation. Because I know people listening to this are going, "Well, who's dumb? He should have taken it." Uh, you don't. It, and people that that are out there dealing with any kind of agent, any kind of representation, you have to remember that they work for you. Period. They work they work for you. You fire them. They don't fire you. Right. That's not how it works. They work for you. You should never have to pay your representation. I know this has come up recently. We're going to, probably going to talk about it another on another episode, but if your representation ever asks you for money, they're swindling you. They well, like good enough. That, that is just the way that it works. Read the contract that you sign when you work with them. And if the contract has anything in it about you paying them. Cut to them, Tom
1: slowly turning to his contract and going. <laughs> uh,
4: no, I'm sure Tom
0: is well aware of this. The, the way that an agent or a manager is supposed to work is they go out and find you work. And then they take a percentage of your paycheck, which means you are paying them, not them paying you.
3: And that's why I don't have an agent. <laughs> right there. <laughs> but
0: there should never be an upfront. There should never be a well. If you just give me a couple thousand dollars, I'll go out and do a phone. I'll market you. We need yeah, a little I'll bit of
4: seed money for this, and uh, yeah, no, that's just, yeah, uh, I've heard that.
0: That's all, and, and <laughs> we'll get this started. It's all total. It's all total bullshit. There. Please note. Oh. there's uh, Sorry. Well. Note that there's nothing illegal about it. Like. I could say, I'm a manager. I'm gonna represent you. give me give me ten thousand dollars and I'll go out and I'll represent you right now. And if you sign the contract and agree to do it, then it's on paper. You agreed to pay me that money. But you should never do that. there's there's no decent legitimate uh, uh, representation that would do that to you. And uh, to Scott's story, there's no decent legitimate representation that would ever talk that way to their representation. Mm-hmm. Like I'm sure I frustrated the hell out of him. Hey, you can frustrate the hell out of him until you're blue in the face, but he represents you. He's supposed to be on your side, right? If you're unwilling to do it, he can he can make his opinions known to you and say like, "Okay, well, let me ask you. This is the best you're ever going to get." Um, and but at the end of the day, he needs to be willing to go. All right, then that's the. I agree. I agree.
1: No, I agree with you, but but I have. I'm saying that it's got to be frustrating for someone who like. Let's say he was a baseball agent and I show up and it's like, all right, now sign me to a team, but I don't want to see any baseballs and I don't want to wear hats.
0: <laughs> well, then, then, it's his, then it's his job not to, to bully you into doing something. To
1: educate me, maybe? I don't maybe
0: know. to educate you, but more realistically to say, because this is in every contract with every bit of representation, to say, this isn't going to work out like you need to find other representation I'm not going to represent you. It the the problem particularly in Hollywood is that these guys they're worried about and and this isn't just in Hollywood this goes for book agents too because I've heard this with a lot of book agents. They're they're out there trying to make a buck just like everybody else. You know, mm-hmm. follow the dollar and at the end of the day they're going to try and pressure particularly you know green creators, young creators into doing things because they're going to make their buck. They're going to get their percentage mm-hmm. of whatever your thing is and and then they're going to be done with you. There are agents and managers out there in all fields who represent young, talented people and their sole goal is to sell one thing off of them and toss them like a piece of trash. <laughs> and <laughs> And there's a lot of them. And I'm like, I'm going to come right out and say, it. there are a lot of those kind of agents because they get a percentage of what you make. So they're going to go out and do that $30,000 deal for you. And they're going to get 10, 15, 20% of it. And at that point, it's like, they're going to wipe their hands and go, all right, I got my taste. I'm done with you. Uh, Move on to the next young kid.
4: And they're going to do that the whole time that they tell you, if you turn this thing around, if you deliver on this thing. It's going to open the door up there. The, the, the sure. company's going to see that you can produce and you're going to have all, you're going to have all kinds of jobs laid out at your feet. If you just pull this one thing off and then you're going to find out five years later that nothing's happened. And not only that did nothing bullshit. happen, but that same agent found somebody else to do it. A- different book that was the same thing that was in your genre and he did sure. it so bad they came to you to fucking try to put it together in two weeks Whoa. and put it and 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 then <laughs> you're gonna be one. standing there saying wait a minute i thought you were my agent but yeah exactly wow. not,
0: brad it sounds like you have some experience that, that, that may have it.
4: been a am that, that one I one go heard too because you had a level of someone else <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, i'm getting dispensation <laughs> from
2: Tom. level of passion
0: yeah but it's at the end of the day and uh any kind of representation, agent or manager should never be pressuring you to do stuff. Now, educating you is one thing. Trying to convince you that, you know, look, this is really honestly in your best interest. And then it comes down to a level of trust. But if anyone is ever cursing at you or saying this is the best you're ever going to get or, you know, just any kind of that level of pressure, they're they're just trying to make a buck, man. And they don't view you as an artist, and they don't view you as a creator. And I'm going to tell you right now, finding good representation is hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because there are a lot of people out there that are going to claim that they are agents and managers, and they're just good well, in, in every field. They're just going to say, "Well, I'm an excellent agent. Look, look at this laundry list of people I represent." And you might even go talk to those people, and they can have a totally different relationship with everyone. You know, if I'm representing Brad and Scott and Tom, Tom might say, "Hey, Corey's great. He, you know, he never, I never have a problem with him. He gets me good work." And uh, and Brad might say, well, fuck that guy. He's, he does nothing for me. And that's what and, was
1: happening with me, right? Like I would call Kirkman and go, I really feel weird about this. And he's like, huh, my experience is completely different. Why right. don't you just tell him you want this and this and that you don't want him to do that? And I'm like, I thought I had, he's like, well, you gotta be strong. You, <laughs> well, tell it, him what you want him to do. And, well, what's the, what's the, what's
3: the, that I've seen with, I'm sorry. No, you go, Tom. Okay. Sure. Well, here's what I've seen with agents, is they have a couple rock stars. And those are the people, and in this case with you, Scott, it was, it was Kirkman, I'm sure. They have a couple rock stars in their roster, and they take care of those guys. You know, because they're making them money. And if you're the low man on the totem pole, either the newbie or you don't have that reputation, you're not a hot artist or whatever, but you're still being repped by them, you don't get sold the same. You barely get brought up. And so you're not. It, it's a totally different agent to you than that other guy that's the rock star
1: hmm i think i can start blaming kirkman for this now (laughs) it (laughs) sounds like well look
2: the the, i I agree the the
1: advice the advice
0: is you should never uh you never pay an agent up front it's it's a swindle deal no agent or manager is going to ask you for upfront money they're just not going to do it especially in a digital age anybody that tells you they gotta you gotta pay them to put together some kind of packet or blah 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 they're full of shit they're just taking your money
4: um well the the other thing i want to say is what's the common thread that you guys have all told in your stories that put you ahead even even back when tom was telling us about the animators in disney the common thread there is communication in other words the thing that you guys used as a, as a tool to get a better deal, was that Scott talked to Kirkman, uh, Tom talked to the other animators? It, it, don't feel afraid to talk about this stuff, and and even to the extent that you're comfortable, get into the uh, some of the details of your uh, 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 of what you're talking about. It's the only way that you can find out where you stand. Am I right?
2: Yeah, yeah,
0: I absolutely. I mean, yeah. it's about it's about knowing your worth as an artist and not underselling yourself and not letting. Your representation uh, bully you and push you around. It's not to say that you shouldn't be taking their advice because they're in the trenches. They 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 should be in the trenches fighting for you, fighting alongside of you. Right? That's their job. But if anyone is ever pressuring you to do stuff, the the conversations that Scott had with this guy, that's a perfect example of frankly of an abusive relationship. Mm-hmm. Like it's Scott's choice to turn down that work, and it it's didn't
1: the- get that way until.
0: And, and it's the manager's choice to say, I'm not going to represent you because you're not, you know, you're not willing to play ball on this, 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 and this. I mean, that's, that's fine. That's a perfectly civil scenario in which if an agent says, look, I'm not going to get, there's, there's not anything better than this. I'm he sorry. Could, he could,
3: he could honestly say, well, look, I, I've been down this road and you're not using me as an agent because you're not listening to my, my two cents on this. And so I, therefore I don't want to work with you anymore. Right. Right
0: but it's scott's job he
1: to He could have also said and i, I mean i kind of got the impression but he could have just said look i'm doing this to you as a favor to robert and this is as good as you're going to get so if you don't take this nothing better's coming the but spoiler alert but here's the deal i don't i don't
0: think that's true and the reason i don't think that's true is because of the way he came after you when sony so aggressively. Uh, when Sony was, said
1: they were interested and I said no thank you and he's like, Well, I'm not gonna go back and tell him no thank you. This is a great deal. You know, right. let's think about this. And I was like, Well, I don't wanna do it. I don't wanna I said, I've already been down this road doing it with someone um
4: with around another my size.
1: Yeah. Now you want me to do it with Sony, you know, where I've signed away my TV rights too.
2: Mm-hmm. And it's yep. just
1: like that just sounds like giving up a lot to and do a lot of work, too. And, instead and at of, the time, I said, like, so keep in mind, so this is a month's worth of work. And he goes, right. And I said, for $11,000. He goes, yeah. And I said, okay, what if I told you that right now I have advertising guys that make me that much, boy, at the time, whew, <laughs> make me that <laughs> much money with one ad buy, and I don't have to do anything. The ad just runs.
0: And the golden golden days of advertising. I know. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds beautiful.
1: (laughs) So, I am going to make that money doing nothing but watching ads run on my site. Now, you're telling me like it's there's a disparity here that I don't quite understand. And
0: a good agent would have tried to work it out for you and would have politely declined Sony and looked for another fire a bad mm-hmm. agent is going to start pressuring you to take a deal because they want their cut i mean that ultimately right. that's what it comes down to you you did the okay. right thing mm-hmm. you valued yourself
1: i don't want to say bad agent i don't want to disparage anybody okay well but but because I'm, i've I, already said who it was
0: <laughs> did you i don't remember well, oh I mean, yeah, it's not
1: hard to figure out but the the right.
0: point is it it That just that relationship, I mean, it doesn't mean he's a bad agent, but that relationship between the two of you clearly wasn't working. The appropriate thing to do is to end that relationship and go find new representation. And there's nothing wrong with that. And that is where I knew
1: I had done the wrong thing because uh, I actually went to Robert Koo for advice and he's like, said what you said. This is a bad relationship. Leave. Yeah. Just send him an email and say, thank you for your time. I don't think we work well together. I wanna, I'm going to go find representation elsewhere. And his response was uh, a line of question marks.
2: <laughs>
0: really? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. Again, uh, emotional manipulation. Not. I, I'm sorry. This, it, it
1: was really rough. I was away from home. I was visiting Seattle. So I had to go back to an empty hotel room and just sit on the bed in the fetal position. <sighs> Or lay on the bed in the fetal position and be like, Oh, what did I do?
3: <laughs> well, you know the problem there is this guy went into that deal thinking I'm I'm doing this guy a favor. Yeah. You know, right. I'm a big Hollywood player. No. I'm gonna I'm gonna set him up with this great deal. He doesn't even deserve it. You know, I mean, so he's he, that's why he he was blown away that one, you turned down the deal, and then blown away too that you turned him down. Because he's like, What the
0: You gotta and in the in this agent's an agency's defense this was happening at a time when Scott, you were in the thick of new media happening. I mean well, that's not basic. only
1: that, but like everyone that I knew in comics at the time uh was doing a single issue of anything mm-hmm.
2: because, to try and sell it because
1: if point. there's a single issue of it out, then their agent can take it and say, "Look at this comic, and comics are being turned into movies like crazy right now mm-hmm. and I mean, it was um, – speaking of Scott Sava, he used to talk to us about – he talked to talk to me about this oh, too, yeah. which is they would – they don't like doing that. Because from a comic industry standpoint, it's unfair to the retailers and the fans to say, I got a brand new series coming out, and then your, your intention is there only to be one issue because you're trying to pitch it. But, but literally – what would happen is they would go to pitch something and they would say, is this a comic book? And you'd say, well, no. Hmm. And they would say, come back when it's a comic book. Like, it needs a graphic novel. Is this a graphic novel? Yeah, Yeah, I've heard that. To support
2: it. Yeah.
1: So, you know, Cho did it. Cho created a single issue called Zombie King to pitch it as a movie. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that was happening a lot at the time.
0: And that's died off quite a little bit but it was it was also a time when you were in the thick of new media i mean it's like the this agent in this agency couldn't understand the concept of you selling uh, f- fake space fake advertising in a, i mean they're used to somebody selling advertising in tv right or or like some kind of physical medium you're talking about selling uh, <laughs> like digital space to a digital to a digital company for a digital image for the same rate that they're asking you to do a full month of work on, you did an excellent job of of valuing yourself. The the, no, the it's agency, easy to
1: err on the side of caution,
0: mm-hmm. right? The agency probably, and I think now, if this all happened today, it would be a totally different scenario because I think that uh, the the Hollywood has really come around to understanding. I mean, you have big players in the digital game now. Um, you know, Crackle is actually a player now crunchyroll netflix amazon like these people are producing their own stuff now that never ever used to happen And this is only in the last couple of years i think if if you were able to take that scenario and put it today it would be a much different scenario you would get you would be offered a a different amount of money from sony and probably and the agency would they would balk at the idea of that previous offer Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not because it's that. not because the prices have changed that much. It's because the understanding has changed. The understanding of the technology, the value of it. Of it. Yeah, the value of the technology has changed dramatically. So you know, the the a, a big corporation like Sony, um, and even a small division at a big corporation like Sony is going to be more willing to make you a, a a realistic and reasonable offer. At the time, the people making the offer and running the stuff. Probably just didn't understand. Like it just did not make any sense to them. Yeah,
1: it was yet, all still new.
0: Yeah, yeah.
3: And the irony is, is that now there's a you know a webcomic guys a dime a dozen on the internet, right? There's millions of them, <laughs> and and same with YouTube people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the the other the flip side of that is that how many of them are not any good? You know that that Hollywood wouldn't want to produce. Right. So them finding a, a diamond in the rough, I guess you could say, uh, back then um now you're you know you've been doing it for a long amount of time everybody knows you obviously you, your value was there back then and, it, and it's even stronger now so
0: well possibly but i mean i've i've kind of found the opposite is true Is the market continues to get flooded with creators some of whom are very talented and some uh, of whom are not the i feel like the quality level is is dropping the bar is actually lowering and companies are able to get Hey, this is kind of back to what we were talking about earlier: people undervaluing themselves and not charging enough. the The rates are coming down for everyone across the board. We've seen it at Toonhound, Brad. I know you've seen mm-hmm. it, Tom. I'm sure you've seen it in animation. Like all of our all, all of our prices are are dropping, mm-hmm. and that's dangerous for entertainment as an industry. Um, you know, we have to make sure that we do a really good job of of valuing ourselves and that we. As creators, that we strive to make the best work possible. I mean, just just shitting out some work and throwing it up on DeviantArt is no good. You got to take the time and the energy to make something quality. And speaking yes, of definitely. speaking of uh,
4: doing quality work and and web comics, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about a relative newcomer to our ranks, uh, Tom's webcomic, What started September 2012? Am I am I guessing that right, Tom?
3: I think so. And yeah. it is
4: outnumberedcomic.com. And it is tremendous. Oh, bless you, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I have a little tear. Sorry. No, it's 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 charming. It's well done. There was one that came across my Facebook feed where the it's it's a it's a man and a woman and three or four daughters. And the one really, really beautifully done that I saw recently was the daughter was looking in the mirror and she's saying, oh, I feel fat. And the mom comes up and says, no, stop. You are are beautiful just the way you are and, and you're wonderful. You're at the apex of your life and it only gets worse from here. And then both women walk away with these hangdog looks on their face because <laughs> they both realize this is as good as it gets, you know, and one is, one is at that point and one is past that point. It's just you summed so much up with four panels. It was really kind of wonderful to study. That's cool. Thank you.
3: I, it was one of my favorites because I, it's so easy to kill a strip and have them say something at the end, you know, yeah, you know yeah. and overexplain and you, it or whatever. And you had the kind, kind of, of pressure to let that, that I, hang. I, i pulled that pulled away from that yeah. um but uh yeah, the strip is you know loosely autobiographical about my family 'cause i I have four daughters mm-hmm. and uh two, the youngest two are twins, and Oof. literally today's their birthday they just turned thirteen nice um, by the time this comes out, they'll be what a week or two older but uh and then uh and then, of course, a wife, so yeah, I'm living in the world of of women every day and romantic comedies and and uh and, and drama frozen I, I like to tell people you know i'm just thrilled at the end of the yeah i'm frozen i'm i'm thrilled at the end of the day if i can say nobody cried today <laughs> You know, <laughs> if somebody cries every day and it's
0: usually me <laughs> <laughs> well, tom thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us i mean really uh we covered a lot of ground here. It's been a treat. I know I've had a blast. Yeah. Um, I did too. Thanks, guys.
2: Meh. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, oh. uh,
1: Tom told me I stir the pot, so now I got to do it. You are you, a good uh, I've,
3: I've listened to all your guys' podcasts. Let me just give you a compliment, real quick, guys. I love this podcast. I've listened to them all. You guys are doing a great job. Corey, I actually love the business stuff that you bring up. I'm probably, well, thank you very much. I may be rare in that, but I, I'm entrepreneurial, so I love hearing all that. Um, and you know, all you guys, Brad's laugh, of course. <laughs> or, you know, and then Scott's negativity. You know, it's all wonderful. <laughs> oh, you guys mix bless really you. well. <laughs> now he's just now he's
0: just poking you. <laughs> I'm
3: poking. I'm poking. So um,
0: the the one agreement we had with you coming on this show, mm. because you did you did uh, give us a hard time about our uh, explicit language, the the agreement was that we would have you on the show if you would if you would uh, give us some explicit language.
2: Oh, that's
3: what? right.
0: <laughs> and I and I'm happy to to beep it out and post.
3: <laughs> I have never ever we didn't talk about this. When did we Let me talk find, about this? I'll find the email. Uh, <laughs> what?
2: Yes. This oh, episode
3: maybe? will never see the light of day. Just no. One, just
0: one F-bomb. Yeah. Oh, no. I'm
3: like, yes. I'm like a monk. You know, you tell my kids, I, I just don't do it. I, you know, it's been a lifelong thing, and I, I just don't cuss. You I, I can't do it. Never?
4: Man. Like, you can't. hit your thumb with the hammer, you don't let's loose with like What do you say when you hit your thumb with the hammer?
3: I, I, I guess... <laughs> You know, but I just, I don't, I go, Golly for know, crying out loud. I'm like super corny. I, like,
2: admit it, I admit it. You are Disney. I, I'll go, I'll
1: go. <laughs> you know? no. it's,
0: it's important to, it's important to note. Uh, and if you're listening to this right now, you will have noticed it, but that entire phraseology, everything that you just said. I'm gonna put beeps and honks oh, and, and car horns and stuff. <laughs> I, was
3: gonna say, yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, just
1: beep that out. It'll sound like I said, I said it.
0: Awesome.
1: We should just do a whole edit where we randomly, inappropriately beep just innocent words. <laughs> Everything Thomas says <said. laughs> oh, to make cool. Tom sound, poor Tom <laughs> sound filthy. I love that. I support it whole,
2: wholeheartedly.
1: All right. <laughs>
0: well, thank <laughs> you. Uh, thank you again. Um, you can check out, I mean, where, where should we send people, Tom? Outnumberedcomic.com, obviously. Is there anywhere else you want people to see your work?
3: Uh, yeah. And, and, and the Facebook page, Bancroft Brothers is a great place to kind of know what's going on with both me and my brother mm-hmm. and, uh, who I didn't talk about much, but he's, he's doing stuff. And then, um, uh, I'm on DeviantArt too. Um, and you've got a and, Patreon page, don't you? Oh, and I'm on Patreon. Thank you. Yes. Uh, I have a Patreon page that helps support Outnumbered, um, but then also other stuff, and I'm about to go into other stuff, and so I might throw that into, like, I'm actually in talks to do a feature film, and it would be live action with 2D animation, and if that goes, you know, it'd be an indie thing, and I I might add that to my Patreon thing to kind of get people to start, you know, getting behind that, Mm, and there might be a... You know. And if
0: you're if you're interested in animation, learning animation, um, Tom is author of several books about uh, uh, about character and character design. I even think you've got you've got one with Glenn Keane, yeah. Uh, he does the introduction
3: of my first book, Creating Characters with Personality, and my second book is Character Mentor. It kind of takes it from there. First book is about basically if you're starting with a, a blank piece of paper and you want to learn how to create your own character, and that's kind of what that one's all about. It t- talks about the basics. Second book is Character Mentor, and it's really about now that you have a character, what do you do with it? You know, it's about expressions and posing and things like that. And I touched on some of that in the first book, but I really go into it more detail in the second book. So they work well together. Um, and then also I have uh, com, mm-hmm. And com is my uh, art instruction school with an, a partner, and um, we do online uh and it's basically, it's web-based, or video-based, so um, you can watch these videos from top pros. I, I do a few. I do about five or six of them. My brother's done a couple on animation principles. John Pomeroy, um, who's a, helped start the, the Bluth studio and did Space Ace and all those kind of movies, uh, he's on there doing stuff. And we're about to add new ones. We have comic strip guys like Michael Jancy and Soon uh, Scott, right? What? <laughs> <laughs> Pause.
1: I'd love to.
3: Yes. Well, we'd love to have you, man.
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, can you? Do you want my negativity?
3: You would be negative. You wouldn't be. Yeah. Of course You're I not. wouldn't
1: be negative because I'm not a negative person. You're not. Stop it. You're
3: not. You're not at all. I'm a little so, bit. I was responding to your rant on, on the NCS on one of your episodes. That's That's what I was referring to but I didn't say it but
1: what would you think about that
3: well I'm in the NCS too so I'm in the same club you are because I'm an animator and a webcomic guy now so I'm like even even more of a bastard child I guess (laughs) to that group but they've been very nice I mean that's the thing is I I've only gone to one Rubens it was the one in San Antonio back years ago I was nominated for something so I I went but you know I've been a member ever since and uh You know, I love it because it's that's where my heart is. I grew up loving comic strips, so I just want to be in the club. I guess
1: I know. I wanted. I wanted to. As much as I hate to admit it,
3: are are you still a member?
1: No. I mean, the funny thing is now. Now that I've whined like a little baby about it, um, (laughs) I get to kind of enjoy it without having to. I honestly wouldn't pay the fee. I, I I won't... So, okay. And, and we've talked about this a little bit before, but, like, what most cartoonists get out of the Rubin is what guys in my position get three or four times a year when we do the convention circuit.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, we get a chance to get out. We get a chance to hook up with our peers yeah. and commiserate. And for the NCS, you know, the Rubin weekend is the one weekend they get to do it. Yeah, um, so it makes a ton of sense, you mm-hmm. know, that how important that thing is to them. And so for, I think for the most of, for the most of the membership, um, it's worth, I don't know what the dues are a month or is it a year? Is it a yearly due, Brad? Yearly, yearly.
4: So it's 150 yeah. a year? 150 something was like the that? dues as I remember it. Yeah. And I then think three, it
1: is. Yeah. And then 300 go to the Rubens, yeah. right? I just well, got my bill. <laughs> yeah. See, yeah. I, I'm just not interested. The the thing is, is that uh every time I ask these guys, you know, what is what's what do I get, you know, for joining the NCS, their response is, Well, what you get is what you bring. Yeah. And I'm like, Well, <laughs> that's fair, but yeah. I think that if I'm gonna bring something, I'll put it elsewhere. <laughs> I mean, I guess I'll put it where it's appreciated by everyone. Yeah. Yeah. I don't need... They're not very
3: welcoming to new people either, which is crazy because that sales pitch is kind of the sales pitch I got was, well, we can't really answer that question, although they didn't say it like that, but it was kind of like, you get to go to the Rubens every year, and that was kind of it, Mm. you know?
1: Yeah, which I understand why that's important. I know that um, the year that John Rosenberg won uh, the Reuben for the first Reuben for Best Online Comic, he joined the NCS, right? And now he's at their annual meeting at the end of the Rubens, and some old dude stands up and says, any cartoonist that uses a Cintiq should pay twice the fees yeah. because they're wrecking the industry. And it's like,
2: <laughs> all right.
1: Like I don't know that I need to contribute to, to yeah. that. Yeah. Um but I mean and then and then it's like the the response is, well, but if you come in, we need guys like you to come in and change it. And I'm like, well, if I'm gonna come in and change it, then I might as well just start my own club. Right. And oh. I can I can you know what How I mean? How much are your
3: dues? Are little cheaper?
1: There's you you're in it, buddy. Congrats. <laughs> oh. oh, it
3: was free. I love it. It was
1: free free of charge you're in the club you you got the gig
3: i want to be a lifetime member of this club you're in it
1: yeah awesome it's called scott scott Scott, brad and Corey's smile time sunshine factory (laughs) and you (laughs) uh
0: i'll collect dues if you want to give me money (laughs) no we're not
1: collecting dues that title alone i want
0: to pay for that (laughs) awesome
3: if I get a button anyway, or a t-shirt, A I'm button, in. definitely a button.
1: Well,
0: you, you know, you get what you bring.
4: <laughs> so, <laughs> what? Yeah, there I you mean. go. I'll
3: make that t-shirt then.
0: Thank you so much to Tom Bancroft for joining us this week. Be sure to check out his book, Creating Characters with Personality. It's available on Amazon and other retailers, as well as his webcomic, Outnumbered, that you can find at outnumberedcomic.com. Remember, Surviving Creativity is made possible by patrons like you. If you like what you heard, head on over to patreon.com forward slash surviving creativity, and please consider becoming a patron. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week with another episode of Surviving Creativity.